Hey everyone, welcome to Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai and welcome back to another episode where we are going to explore conversations relevant for the next generation of developers. In this season, we're going to dive into developer tools, how they were made, why they were made, and what we can do and build with them. I think it's going to be a really fun look as to, you know, kind of behind the curtains, what's going on. As a reminder, this episode is brought to you by OutSystems. OutSystems is a developer platform for building enterprise web and mobile. And as we're building all these different types of applications, one of the conversations I want to explore is AI development. I'm not an AI developer. I've done a chatbot once. It was awesome. It was fun. But I'm happy to bring on Jessica Ehrlichha, who is a developer advocate at Google Assistant. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. So I wanted to bring on a co-host, Antonio Alegria, head of artificial intelligence at OutSystems. It's going to be a really fun conversation. And I think it's a really important one to explore because I think a lot of developer tools and platforms are moving into the space of AI-assisted development. So I'm excited. Let's explore it. I want to welcome everyone to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Today, our co-host is Antonio Alegria. I, Very good. Very Tony, good. Tony, Tony Joy. Getting better. I'm getting Tony Joy. Just call Tony me Tony Joy. Joy. We've got Antonio. He's the head of artificial intelligence here at Systems with our guest, Jessica Ehrlichha, developer advocate on the assistant team at Google. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, inviting me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, awesome. I think today I really wanted to dive into Google, but I think from the lens of AI, from the lens of assistant and Let's start with like, I don't even know where to start because Google is such a big monstrosity of a beast. I actually have a really fun fact. What was the guy's name? Eric Schmidt at Google, right? Back in, who was the CEO at the time? Eric Schmidt. Is it Eric Schmidt? Okay. At some point. At, at, some, at, point, at some point it was. Random tangent. I like was standing right next to him at Burning Man. Oh, <laughs> in that's cool. 2016, 18? And I was like, is that the... I hear he's a fan. Oh, is he? I was like, is that the Google guy? (laughs) But I think before we even got there on the desert, I think my question is, is like, how did Google come to be? Let's start with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Google started just outside in a garage. I believe it was a research project that Larry and Sergey had when when they were in Stanford. And they were just kind of playing around and the internet was so new then like now we consider the internet to be very normal but before you know in the 90s it was the wild west so the whole idea of being able to search and to index like that was new and that's pretty much what got started that's how google started was a search engine it's really funny i looked up some of the history and they were actually they tried to sell Google to a few companies. One of them they were trying to sell it for like a million dollars, and the person was like no. And they were able to negotiate down to like seventy five hundred thousand. And the company was like, nope, we're good. And then after that, that's when they introduced ads, and then pretty much the rest is history. In that point, like once you could start monetizing, there's money coming in, and things started building and growing after that. Right. That's a really good point. Antonio, do you happen to remember your first impressions of Google? I don't know if you're like, what are the notes? Yeah, they're not crisp, but I do remember using AltaVista and Yahoo 
a lot. Oh, I definitely remember all And then he used it, but it wasn't great. And I remember when I started using Google, I think it may be at right around 98, maybe. And it was just, everybody started using. It's one of those things that you see your friends just start using and everybody just flips and starts using Google at that time because the results were good. The results were pretty yeah, good. That's a really good point. How about you, Jessica? I mean, I guess what was your first memory of Google, maybe even as just a regular consumer? And then also, I think with that, like trail in your developer journey, right? Like I think today what we really want to discover is, is Google and how it became to be, but really the dev tools at Google and then like how it's related to developers. And then of course, assistance specifically. But I think what I'd love to just really start with is understanding like your first impressions and your first, the first time you really saw Google and then how you saw it again when you became a developer and that journey as well. Oh my gosh, totally. That's a fantastic question. I remember using Hotmail and making the move to Gmail simply because my partner was like, this is better. And I remember thinking, but there's no folders. I don't understand. Oh, I remember the referral, the referral <laughs> list, right? right? It's yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah, to just even get on Google. Totally. And my partner was very involved. He's a big fan of Google. So a lot of it came from him when it came to that component. But the search, like I remember having to teach coworkers, and this is when I used to work in a nonprofit on how to use Google of like, yeah, there's certain keywords. You can't just talk to it. You have to talk in a certain format. And that was very foreign. I had no technical understanding at that point. So it was very much like, think of keywords in that sense and trying to explain that. So I remember thinking that this was really cool, but not understanding how it all happens, like underneath the hood, nor did I care at that point. I was just like, cool, it got me what I needed. Let's go. If I may add really quickly, I remember the early days of the browser, like it was the URL line where you type in the URL. And I remember back quote in the day where my mom would be like, shoes.com or I want shoes. And it wasn't a search engine at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and they were just like, my mom would treat it like she was ahead of the time. Yeah, that's amazing. That's what some parents do now. <laughs> but then Google knows to direct you. Exactly. Now they, yeah, now they could totally do that. Yeah. But yeah, Google was definitely more of a, I'm going to just use it for search and for my emails. And gosh, I remember just getting emails was amazing and just being super excited on that. And now I feel like it's the opposite where I'm like, I actually got mail. That's not a bill in my actual mailbox. That's amazing. And all my junk mails in my inbox now. So it's interesting how 20 years later, things flip. But yeah, and a lot of my exposure from Google had been, again, from my partner because he was very enthusiastic. He's a developer. I remember him going to Google IOs and being like, I have no idea what you're doing, but you have fun. That's great. Like, you do you, babe. I'm going to stay over here, do my thing. And I think that's really was my first exposure to kind of development and that Google is not just search or like these like user focus content. Like there's like, you could do and extend these functionalities, which after I start understanding, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And so then was Google part of your journey of becoming a developer? Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Google definitely had an influence because when I was looking at doing a kind of a career change, I was looking at potentially be- going to therapy, becoming a psychologist and doing that route. I've also looked into other things and I was thinking about tech. And I was talking to one of my good girlfriends, Rio, who's used to be a woman tech maker lead for North America. And I was chatting with her. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she's like, oh, at Google I.O., there was a women tech makers dinner the night before. 
And she was like, you know, and I was, she was sitting next to a gal who was telling her about a boot camp, and her being like, why are you telling me? Like, I don't care about working out. I don't know if tech is my thing. And she was like, oh, no, 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 no. Software boot camp. <laughs> and so through the Women Tech Makers event, I found out about a female only software boot camp that I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Because a lot of my nonprofit work has been supporting and empowering women. And so I was like, oh, this kind of is a little bit in the same vein. There's a lot more kind of I'm new to this whole space and I've worked primarily in industries that are predominantly female. So like making that shift over, I knew would be hard. And so it's like, oh, wow. Through this event, I learned about software bootcamp and I got, I got interested, looked into it and I eventually applied to that bootcamp and I got in. And that's really when I made that transition from nonprofit work to software development and Ever since there, I'm like, yeah, Google has been pretty consistent in my life because then I joined the Google Developer Group and I ran the meetup in San Francisco. And that's when I met you and all these amazing people yeah. who are like this great network. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, exactly. That's, I think for context for those who are listening to the show, I've known Jessica, I think since 2013, but at least 2014 yeah. from Google Developers Group, which mm -hmm. is absolutely bonkers. So it really sounds like the Google Developer ecosystem has been around your journey for some time now. And I think at this point, I want to know, how did Google's developer tools come to be? And then even with an assistant, like how did that come from developer tool. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I did some research and I was looking at like, when did Google really start supporting developers? And it was in 2005 that Google launched Google Code. And oh, through that, was that baby, that was the first. That was the boo boo. Yeah. And through that, you know, that's where they expose some APIs and really get things going. So that was not too early on, like, but really when things started happening within Google, which is pretty cool. And when it comes to assistant, I believe the assistant was announced at I.O. of 2016. And later that year, that's when Actions on Google, the platform, so developers can build for Google Assistant, was launched. And so definitely, like, right after the reveal of, like, hey, there's this Google Home, there's this thing you talk to, and it'll answer questions, a few months later, it got expanded. So then all developers could add their content to Google Assistant. So, I mean, I, I have so many questions just to even like begin with Assistant because when I think of Google Assistant, then starting to release their tooling for maybe you want to call them retail devs or just solo devs, whatever it may be. I think this is definitely an entry point to a whole new frontier of voice and AI. I mean, I'd love to hear from really both of you if you guys have any thoughts about maybe like mobile development 10 years ago, voice 10 years ago. And yeah, I usually like to frame to people like where we're at in voice is where we were in mobile 10 years ago. I remember pulling out my, like people telling me, hey, use your phone to order a stranger to come pick you up and get in their car. And that being so weird, like, why would I do that? Why do I need the internet on my phone? I have the internet on my laptop. That's like, there was this definite like, shift over when it came to mobile and it, it took time to find its footing. And dude, I remember like gnarly websites that were like just ugly <laughs> and like weird, but that was fun. Like that was the wild west and we're still figuring things out at that point. And I like to think of that when it comes to kind of voice development, like we have a lot of tooling. We don't know exactly know what's ideal, how to even market it, how like 
where does it fit and how does it fit within the larger ecosystem? But it's definitely, I think it's something that we'll be using more in the future. Yeah, one of the things that I find kind of super interesting and telling of the future regarding Google Assistant, it's, for example, the Google Duplex. It's kind of associated with that. And the, what's the name of that new feature? Hold for me, hold for me. I saw that Android, right? Where you can put the assistant waiting for someone who's putting it on hold, right? And it then just, when it finishes, it takes care of it for you. It's almost like we're going in the future, we're going towards a world where you have voice APIs, right? So these are not APIs, REST APIs, very structured. You have voice APIs and eventually services could interact with one another or with humans just using natural language, yeah. right? And that's really interesting from a developer tooling standpoint. That's something that I really question. How are you evolving the developer tools from a world where you start with actions, right? So you have these commands, well-defined commands and intents that then you can have the Google Assistant parse out the natural language to map to those commands. But how do you evolve to something which is more flexible than predefined, very well-defined commands? And is this something that you're thinking about at Google and that you're seeing maybe some developers already exploring? Yeah, I think the biggest thing when it comes to having 3P's content with Google Assistant, there's definitely like the separation so then the user knows who you're talking to. Because if you're talking to Google Assistant, it's very different than when you're talking to, to my application or to insert brand names application. Like there's a branding aspect to it. And right now we're, we've added way more support when it comes to allowing developers to have a better control over the conversation flow. Because I would say that's the hardest part is you could define intense, but like when somebody says yes, are they saying yes to this thing or to that thing? And so managing the conversation flow and where they're at, I think is the hardest part. And that type of tooling is still being kind of fleshed out because before we had dialogue flow was our primary medium that we recommend to developers. It's still a great and fantastic tooling, but it's more chat-based and it has a different kind of position than voice forward or voice only kind of devices. And so we actually introduced Actions Builder, which has an SDK component to it to provide more of that functionality and be able to really give developers kind of a holistic view and be able to link an intent to this concept that we have of a scene, which is really interesting. That idea of a scene or a page has really bubbled up in the voice community. And you could think of it like a scene in a play or a scene in a movie. Like it's this idea that in this time, certain activities will happen. So like in the beginning of this podcast, there's an introduction and that makes sense for those things to happen and to have those intents that would fit in that part of the scene to be tethered to that scene. And then when we move into the next scene where we're doing these Q and A's, most likely we won't have the intent of what is your name or tell us your name because that doesn't make sense to be in that scene. And so we're trying to give developers that type of tooling to help support. But I firmly believe that we're so new in voice that that might not be the best way because how do you tether something so like ethereal or like something that's not yeah. concrete to something that is concrete. I think that's the hardest part. I also think what you alluded to earlier, which was even 10 years ago, or if we are in the early days of voice development, what I really saw was that in the early days, it was essentially just speech to text and there wasn't any intense and there weren't any conditionals. And where we are now we're closer to the sci-fi narrative 
However, we're still not there, right? And I think at this point, the question really is, how is, if not AI development, how is at least voice assistant development relevant for even just web devs? Like a lot of young early devs, whoever whoever else is working in the industry, I think oftentimes when we think of development or the development tool landscape, it's often just like, hey, let's build a website, let's build some mobile apps. And that seems like the very quick narrative, but I think that that's such, it doesn't include a lot of the work that, I mean, genuinely you both do as a developer advocate for assistant and as head of AI as well, right? So. One thing that comes to mind as Jessica was talking about, and you were talking about the scenes and kind of it's a different way of thinking and it's not concrete, it's ethereal, right? But the developer tools which were built and have evolved for something that's very structured, very predictable, right? So it almost makes me think if the future of voice development tools are going to be more voice-based, right? Where it's more of an interaction where you're actually training, almost trying to train and talk about the scene. It's a little bit like this, a little bit like that. There's a lot of challenges there. And is that something, if you can reveal something that <laughs> I'm sure Google Brain or the research groups or even Jeff Dean, perhaps, in, in an afternoon hackathon with Sanjay, just working on the <laughs> on these kinds of things. Yeah, I would say Google itself moved to be more machine learning focused and forward. And so that I think has really unlocked a lot of those kind of blockers. And I do agree, we're not there yet when it comes to the technologies, but that's where I think we're experimenting and exploring. So when people come up to me and they're like, how do I make money doing this? And it's like, we're so new, like this idea and like nobody, there has been no platform that has learned to really truly monetize this because how do you do ads with voice? Yeah. Like how do you do that? I don't want to listen to an ad that feels weird. How do I skip it? How do I know when I could skip it? Like there's a lot of unknowns. So that's definitely something that is still being explored and figuring out of, of what makes the most sense. And I think that comes along with the tooling. Like, how do we describe these different interactions? I'm hoping that there'll be a day where we'll have these common pathways or these common kind of user journeys that people will have that will make it easier for developers so that they can go, yeah, this is the user journey to check out, to order something or to view like inventory or X, Y, Z. And that way they can kind of go, cool, this is what I want. And just adding in the information that they need that's unique to their business or unique to their their experience, I think would be, makes the most sense because that's kind of what we did with all other platforms where we don't build things from scratch anymore. That doesn't make sense. You download a boilerplate code and you build off of that and you grab different pieces. So I think that's where we're going to go to, but I don't know how that looks like. And that's exciting. Yeah. The AI assistant development, right? I think that's actually a really great point that I wanted to share is also, I think there's been a few moves of developer tools and developer platforms moving into that AI-assisted development that you just kind of highlighted right there. Especially as Google, as you mentioned, Google has also have moved towards a shift towards being focused on ML, right? Are you guys familiar with Kite? Kite.ai? Kite, Jessica, it's about to blow your mind, girl. Check it out. This podcast is about to just be about Kite. But basically, it's like the Grammarly for Python code. So instead of having, I know, basically, instead of having to type out every keystroke for Python, 
the AI will assist in saying like, this is probably what you're going to intend. So it reduces a lot of your keystrokes, right? So similar to Grammarly, and then also your syntax is wrong. I mean, even here on our team at OutSystems, we're a developer platform that allows devs to build web and mobile, well, specifically like enterprise and mobile, right? And so how our platform works is that we have the developers, we can build the architecture, you can build out the logic flow. And then within the logic flow, there's going to be an assistant that essentially tells you like, hey, based off of what functionality you're going to build out next, we probably recommend this to really speed up that development. But yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about like a lot of developer tools are moving towards that assisted part. And then how, when and how does Google Assistant also become a tool for developers on that journey, right? Because like, think about it when kids these days, they can just, hey, Google, what's seven plus one, right? And I couldn't do that back then, <laughs> but now, but maybe now to go, hey, Google, what's the syntax for this again? Or like, is there a better thing than SQL, right? Yeah, so like when does Google Assistant become also a dev tool for devs, but then you also build with, I don't know, I'm just going into a meta. That's cycle. very meta, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like when does the assistant become truly an assistant? And I think that could be applied to like developers or to users. Like when can it proactively be supportive? Like I know the context that you're writing this script. I know like I could see kind of this pattern. Let me offer a suggestion or I see you're grabbing your keys. Let me offer to like turn on the alarm after you leave the house. Like how does it do that? And how does it know like that awareness where it's not intrusive? but it's truly like an assistant. It helps support you. I think that's kind of like the light that I'm, I'm working towards of like, how can we really have something that could be helpful? Because I don't really care to always have to go, hey, G, do this thing. Hey, G, do that. Like it should know I'm getting up and it's 830. I'm going to go do my bedtime routine. Do it proactively would be nice. Like I have routine set up, but I don't want to have to say it. <laughs> there we go. I'm about it. Well, so then maybe like share with us some, do you know of any case studies or projects of how devs are building with assistant? It can be something as grand as like a full-on company. I know something in the back of my head, Fidelity, like a bank does, like Fidelity does something. I mean, Fidelity is not a bank, but I mean, I think that's one example. But I think my question is, how do we get devs to care about the future of voice? Because I think a lot of times devs are like, oh, I'm going to, again, I'm just overgeneralizing by a lot. It's like, I'm going to build this website. I'm going to build this integration or I'm going to build this mobile app. But how, why should a dev care about Google Assistant, I guess, at that point? Totally. Yeah. And I think there's two parts of that. One is like from a company standpoint of like your brand and giving your users that unique experience, I think is always interesting. Disney has a fantastic action that is super cute and super interactive. And something that they have is a game where Mickey Mouse talks to the child. And in conversation design, there is this idea of the three strike rules. So if the virtual assistant doesn't understand you, by the third time, it should exit out and end the conversation gracefully. But within this action in particular, because it's aimed towards children, it goes counter that idea where if the child doesn't select anything or say like the right thing by the third time, Mickey just goes, oh, that's cool. I'm going to choose this for you instead and continues that experience because it knows it's user base essentially. But those type of things I think are really unique. I believe also they had storytelling with Frozen 2 
about a year ago and that was adorable. So like these kids can talk to their and ask their for kids these characters are real. They get asked them to read them a bedtime story. So it's creating those moments, I think, that are fantastic. And that's those two are very focused on children. But there's a lot when it comes to gaming and creating those type of experiences that we've had several case studies that came out in the summer where we were really exploring how do you do games voice forward? Because gaming just with your voice is a little strange. Like when it comes to like long-term oh, play. like. Jump, Frogger. I mean, I think it's great for like maybe mobility and accessibility for people of different able bodies. Or, yeah. Right. Oh, so mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. But because yeah, games with your voice or with your mind, maybe right? you can strap like a. Yeah. <laughs> now, yes. now I'm dropping an EG. Was it EGG band? <laughs> EG band. And then just like moving targets with your mind through the. Totally. And that's a really trippy like idea. I remember when we were first talking about like, how do you do games? Like what games make sense to be voice only or voice forward where you might use the smart display to give you those like additional rich information? Because when it comes to voice, it's a great way to consume data from the user. Like I find it easier for me just to be like, hey, XYZ, no, no, no. And then I'm out. Versus let me type this out and like providing data is hard and it's so much easier with voice, but consuming it, I don't want to hear 15 options of like movies. That does not sound great. I was just going to say, this kind of reminds me when you call the bank and it's like, you have to like with with your mouth something and then you're just like, oh, and you just keep hitting zero Mm -hmm. because you just don't. What is that? Can someone explain like, what is the mapping behind your very generic bank customer service AI voice routing? Does anyone know? It depends on the, the org, org and whatever you have we want to optimize for. It's really bad. And I've seen some services that have that kind of IVR where you instead of pressing, you have to say things, but very slowly, like, okay, tell us your code, something code. And then you're like, it's worse. I would rather type it. And that's why it's super interesting, for example, to see things like Google Duplex and how that will evolve and how businesses and developers are going to go from this, like Jessica was saying, where you have this chat-based, it's almost a decision tree-based conversation, which is a little bit more natural, but you're still going through an IVR to something which is more conversational and natural and unconstrained. And when you get there, I think it's really when you open up the possibilities of what you could do, right? You could just put someone con- conversing and solving problems. Just as a reminder, and correct me if I'm wrong, is Duplex the one where it's essentially such a natural AI that someone is taking a customer support call and they don't even realize it's a non-real person? Yeah, there was that demo at I.O. with someone calling to make an appointment. That one. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I remember seeing that Google IO and yeah, I guess it was duplex and they had called a salon and the salon owner did not realized they were talking to an AI. And then they had called a fast food Chinese restaurant and they didn't realize it was. So I thought that was hilarious. So I'll link that in the show notes for like people who haven't heard of Google duplex or seen how almost unnoticeable that AI conversation is. I think it's absolutely brilliant. So I'll link that in the show notes so that you at least have the context because it's incredibly gorgeous. But let's dive into that. Like, what is 
what is some of the way you want to, or how would you like map out the conversation, the management use cases, kind of like the logics and intents for something like Google Duplex? Oh, Google Duplex is its own thing. (laughs) That right now we don't provide that type of functionality to developers simply because it's so new. And like, I have tried to read some of the stuff and I'm just like, whoa, that goes way over my my head. But it's amazing. Like the team itself, like they work within the Google Assistant org and they're always doing amazing things and trying things out, which I think speaks to kind of the newness to voice in this space that, you know, we're still trying to build out and it's hard to build this kind of type of functionality and then turn around and be like, here, let's build tools. Then everyone could do it. So there's definitely like a lag between the two. If I also may add, then how about the accuracy of input, right? So Antonio mentioned a little bit just a moment ago that sometimes he rather just like, let me just punch it in because, right, you've got your thumbs and when you push A or seven, it's pretty accurate when you hit it. But when it comes to voice, you kind of mentioned children earlier. It really comes down to how do you also calibrate the accuracy of your input. And then this also introduces the question mark of how about accents as well or the intents. So totally. Yeah, that's such a great point because it's one thing to translate audio into text when someone knows that they're being recorded, right? When you're doing it and you're making those tests, but it's another thing to how we naturally talk and then how each kind of region has their own way of talking about things. When you say like soda pop or pop, like it's the same as soda, but it depends on the region that you're in. I can think of a lot more examples in Spanish where like there are certain words that mean different things in the different locales. So like, how do you support that? And it's not just region, like it, you can't necessarily only go, okay, somebody is in this location and that's enough information too, because we are always traveling. And so somebody who is, they speak one type of Spanish might go to another Spanish speaking country, but their Spanish is different. And so being able to support users. So I know like my Google assistant does English and Spanish, and we've gone to the point where I could speak to it in Spanglish and it handles it that fairly well, which is really amazing. I'm dying. (laughs) I want to like see the Zoom call that we're on, but I'm just like, Melting away. <laughs> You've like taught your assistant Spanish. I, well, I didn't teach it Spanish, but like it can process like two languages at the same time. Not all languages are supported with this. I'm sorry. I'm like so shook that my brain, it's like side tangent. It's like when I studied abroad in Germany and then I realized the dogs spoke German. <laughs> I like never thought about it. I was like, I thought all dogs spoke English and I just never. Yeah. <laughs> So the Spanglish, I'm so fixated on that, please. I, I'm just... <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting that it depends on... And I've been testing it out just on my own of... It depends on how much, like the ratio of English to Spanish I'm using. That's kind of what I've noticed. Because it will respond back, like in that language I spoke more of, which is super cool. Like when I discovered that, I was like, wait, what? It could do this? But yeah, my Google Assistant has English and Spanish and Korean because my partner's Korean. And so... It's really fun to pull out my phone and I might say something in Korean and it'll start transcribing it in English. And then I'll say it really quickly, like flash in Spanish, like what, how it sounds like in Spanish. And then it goes into Korean. And like, that is just amazing that we have these devices that are starting to detect like the different languages. But I did have to proactively tell Google Assistant, hey, I will understand English and Spanish in my Google Assistant app. 
And that was the reason why it gives that kind of opening. It doesn't, if I say something in French, it doesn't transcribe it in French. It just will transcribe it in English as an English speaker. But that's like a whole different complexity when it comes to languages and accents that we're still working through, but it's hard. And something that we do with our developers is we allow them to create actions in its different languages and be able to flag the regional languages too, which is fantastic. Because again, depends on where you're at, you might speak a little differently. And so you could provide different locales options when it comes to the functionality of your action, not just like changing the words, but you can even change the flow of it because culturally like things happen differently. So you can have in your action that is in Korean, have a different flow that fits better for that market than what you would have on your English version. So because it's targeting different people and different kind of cultures too. Oh, I just my mouth, love your face. <laughs> yeah, my, I was gonna say my mouth is dry because I've just been like, <laughs> like jaw ajar for so. Oh. I was just like, I'm just gonna literally be staring at my ceiling tonight. Wait, but my phone can this language and that. Like, I'm, I am super obsessed because what I'm also realizing is that, and please, please, I'd love to hear y'all's insight. Is I think when you are a developer working on AI or voice, you have to consider so many more variables and so many more intents. Whereas if I'm just making maybe a payment integration, as an example, maybe the intent I'm talking about like a high level is like, okay, customer is going to check out. Right? There's, right? It's like, there's not quote too many ways you can mess it up. And now I'm really realizing that, oh my gosh, if you're a dev in either AI or in this ecosystem, there is just so many other variables that you have to map out for. So like, how do you guys even tackle that? Because I really don't work on a lot of AI projects myself. So yeah, I know there's a concept of a happy path within conversation design. And so you built out your happy path for a particular market and having like one thing versus trying to do all the things. That's something that I've, whenever I work with developers, they're like, oh my gosh, I want to build this thing that does that. And I'm like, you're recreating Google Assistant. No one's going to go, hey, Google, talk to this action to have the same functionality. Like that's not the reason or like that's not going to be a great fit. So really being targeted on what you do and doing it well. So really starting off with that happy path. And then of course, it depends on the brand or the company, whether they want to expand functionality within that particular locale and market, or if they want to translate it. And again, translation, I really want to kind of push out that it's not just going, here's this sentence, let me translate it to this other sentence in this language. Like translation has to do with cultural translation, really making sure that this makes sense for that population. Because when it comes to voice, it's so personal. It's so human-like. It's really interesting how there's been studies that humans will add characteristics to voice when they only hear a voice, like they'll interpret, oh, this is male or masculine or female and how old and kind of where this person's at, their social economic standing. Like we get a lot of data from voice. So that really means it's so important when you are translating or trying to hit different markets that you're being mindful of that. The fact that you get a lot of data from voice, right? I think that's a really good point. I mean, I guess just kind of like bring our little brains back. I think the impression that I'm left with is, yeah, as you mentioned, that kind of that happy path, the happy mm-hmm. trails. Yeah, the happy path. Yeah. yeah, the happy, happy well, it's, it's a happy journey. During the happy journey. Yeah, I think it's a really, I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but it really begs me to think that, again, when you are a dev working on these kinds of projects, there is so much attention left 
to consider when you're building for just so many different variables, different user paths, different user journeys, which again, what I just very briefly mentioned, if you're just integrating a, like a checkout payments is pretty straightforward. So that's... Well, it's straightforward now because we have a particular flow, like that has been normalized, whether it be within our tooling to create that functionality to kind of copy paste and users being exposed to that kind of functionality. So there's like two things happening that has made it normal. That's a good point. Yeah. So aka the show before it was Stripe, I suppose, when it came to checkout. (laughs) I don't know, right? Right. Well, I remember a world where like you would never put your credit card on the internet. Like that would have been bonkers. Who does that? So yeah, now I'm like, yeah, I'm going to buy my clothes. I'm going to buy my shoe. Like I'm not going to a store at all. Let me just buy everything through the internet. (laughs) I've done the other path of like, well, give me all those virtual debit cards. Who knows who's taking my stuff? So now you got artificial. Right. Yeah, I think that you'll see more like, so currently you have all this intent base and conversation design, which I love, and I would love to hear more about that and how are you doing it. But you still have to design all of these paths. So you have the happy path and then it just explodes in a combination of things and you're implementing Google Assistant. And I think where this is going to unlock more people, yes, we're going to build a better tool stack, but also it's going to be more AI powered in the sense that, and you're already seeing that with, for example, it's not a Google thing, it's an open AI, the GPT-3, a lot of people were showing about it. What's more interesting about that model, a lot of people are doing demos in, in Twitter, is that you tweak the model for your task in a different way. You kind of prime it, you give it examples. So it's a different way of developing your thinking. And I think that kind of thing, I can see that working well with voice, where you're kind of priming it to respond and to interact which kind of brings me to a question, which is Google is, from people I know, is really good in developer tools, in particular, internal developer tools. I know you have lots of investment in developer tools and just the source control is its own thing. Lots of good stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I would imagine they are using, in Google, you're using some tools for building these the duplex and whatever the first generation and the next generation of things that come out that you still haven't packaged the developer tools for external. Is there kind of, you see kind of a pattern of things like starting out at Google, internal dev tools, and then you see that migrating to external dev tools. Is there any relationship there or is it completely different motion? Oh, I would say it's kind of like any other company where sometimes the internal tools are not <laughs> as friendly, developer friendly as external tools, because that is a service that people will pay us. And so I think just like any other company, we put a little bit more weight on making those things a better developer experience. So I think Google is the same thing. There's nothing more special about Google in that regards. But something that is very true is there is so many people who work at Google. They're amazing folks, but just the sheer quantity that there are a lot of tooling. I've seen not necessarily, because I've only been at Google for three years. I haven't seen like something that's internal being externalized that we're using at the moment, but I've seen flavors of it because we're still iterating over things. So when I started, we had different types of conversation designing tools to help design those flows and how do you visualize that? And so we've taken pieces of that to make our actions builder to be a little bit more in line. And I think there's also a part And what you were mentioning, Antonio, that being able to make it easier for people to build, I think really unlocks voice from it being developer only right now to being anybody being able to build. I think that 
is going to be really powerful because when I first started making my first action, I was like, cool, I'm going to make this thing. It's going to be where it tells whiteboarding questions. Cause the hardest part of interviews is the whiteboarding. So they give you a technical question. You have to write it out. And I was like, oh, cool. That's great voice. That way you could hear someone giving you a question. You can ask for help and you could mimic that scenario. And I was building it. I got stuck and I kept thinking about it. And I was like, oh, what's wrong? And I realized this isn't a technical issue. This is a conversation design issue. I didn't think about how my user is going to move through this and how they may move back and what they might like how to build that fluidity to it because it's not like a GUI where here's the two buttons and this is all you can do. (laughs) There's a certain kind of shift in your brain of how will people interact with this that are not like me? And so I definitely, once I discovered that, I started hanging out with more conversation designers of like, hey, how should I do this? Or like, tell me more about X, Y, Z, because the technology part at this point was available. It's not super complex because Google Assistant handles the actual intent matching and processing the user's intent, but it's the designing part. And so I definitely believe that you can't just build something or voice just as a developer. You need a designer and somebody who understands just word choices and how people communicate and kind of there's this other kind of creative tech person that I think there's a role that's going to come out with that who can speak the two languages of I could communicate to a designer and to like marketing team and I could communicate with a developer and connect those two because right now there's a little bit of a disconnect and that's where you see kind of not great voice experiences. (laughs) I love how you're just nodding like yes. (laughs) Yes. No, yes. But I have a love-hate, more-hate relationship with the assistant I use, which is not Google's because I use an iPhone, right? And it's just, I just can ask for timers. And even then, it's it fails a lot. And my wife always jokes because every time she enters the room, it never, never works. Oh, no. I think she's jealous. <laughs> well, you could download the Google Assistant app on different yeah. devices if you like. A hundred <laughs> million option. downloads on Play <laughs> Store, by the way. <laughs> plug plug right there right but there i think what you said was really quite beautifully said is that there is no gooey when you're trying to provide input as a user for voice that is actually hilarious because that's why people are sometimes so awkward providing as a user giving input because there's no gooey right there's no visual feedback well, i mean there's audio feedback ideally you have to see if you make it and then what is the ux designer for voice right right so then at that point, you're like, oh, well, maybe a UX designer for voice is essentially a linguist, which is pretty bonkers. And, and you know, at this point, really kind of to bring this all together, really to, to really wrap this up, is what I, a question that I love to ask most guests and co-hosts, whatever it is. So I'm going to adapt this question a little bit, which is what is your first or most nostalgic memory? of voice or AI? Like what's your first memory of like, oh, this is AI or oh my gosh, this is voice. And you're like, what? I think it was, so I had a Mac when I was a kid, like not the first ones, but you know, one of the early ones. And I used to play a game where you would set up robots and they would battle it out and you would set up the strategies, which was a very weak AI. It was my rule-based AI, but I really enjoyed it. And I remember how the Mac, the Mac unveiling, I didn't watch it as I was a kid, but I watch it now a lot. 
And the Mac unveiling had that voice synthesizer, which is not AI as well, but it kind of... Oh, right, the synthesizer, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it says hello. And those would be my earliest memories, kind of a game where you would have these robots and they would have some behaviors and they would have to respond, as well as the chess games I had there. Oh, yes, that as well. Chess would be a really good visual example of AI and the logic behind it, but also I think the synthesizer as kind of the precursor to voice and AI as we know today. I think at the same vein for me, it's not true AI, but I remember calling our local movie theater and it when it was able to understand me, I remember that blowing my mind of just like, oh, I could just say the name or just the net, like it, it understood me and gave me something that wasn't like the menu again. That was amazing. There was also a lot of like, interesting issues with that because my mother couldn't use it. I'm from a a small town in on the border of Mexico and California. And so it was definitely designed by somebody who spoke English only. And my mother only speaks Spanish. So it didn't work for her. So whenever we wanted to watch movies, she was like, yeah, like we would have to do it. So it was rare. It was still something that like, that's when I recognized too the limitations of it. Because I was like, oh, this isn't nice for my mom. Like, my tia can't use this. That's not cool. That's exactly like the first memory, the first user experience, the first friction point. It's a really good point. I think for me, y'all, I'm about to, I'm about to blow maybe both of your minds, maybe at least Jessica. I know, Jessica, your eyes. The beep was Furby's. <laughs> oh, Furby's. I did I have a Furby. Furby. Oh. oh my gosh. So like, as a kid, I was like, watching me, how does it talk? How is it responding to me? Does it know my intents? What are the intents of the Furby? Is it murder or world domination? Because it was horrifying. And <laughs> was that like the first experience of consumer, like retail AI? Maybe. Antonio's I'm, like spinning. Furby. Furby. I mean, I'm scanning. I'm scanning. Yeah, he's like mapping out. Furbies <laughs> and Tamagotchis and everything is right. going through my mind. <laughs> oh, so anyways, that was like probably my first... Yeah, and that was like really the first thing, a device that was watching you and listening and could respond to you, like could react to you. That's, okay, yeah. I, just, I just thought of a hilarious and completely useless project we can build, like maybe a Furby talking to Google Assistant. <laughs> Furby duplex. Yes. It would with be a Yoda, integration. Yoda voice. <laughs> and we'll just put it on... GitHub somehow. Like I'm sure Disney is working on something around those lines. I'm sure of it. Just a baby Yoda. Well, Rogu doesn't talk, but something like that. A toy that can talk and just converse with a child. And I think there's probably already something out there, right? A toy, an actual physical toy. Well, I know how I'm going to spend my weekend. Right. <laughs> we're going all the, all the funky projects that you can, one could build. Anyways, y'all, I really do appreciate this in-depth, weird rodeo of a ride through <laughs> voice AI. And Jessica, if there's anything you can leave us with, maybe what is it that you're working on? How can we support you? How can we how to support you? Yeah, I'm working with a couple of different projects. So of course, with Google Assistant, you can build voice and there's different ways you can build for voice. So a few things that we've recently launched that I've been working on has been supporting app actions, which will, you could use your Android functionality and use like leverage Google Assistant. So you could say something to the fact of like, hey, G, open up whatever application it is and do X. And it'll open up your app, 
right to that page. And if you provide any other data, it's supported, it's there, which makes it, I think that's super cool. And then of course, when it comes to just what we call conversational actions, which are like the wild west, where we're really doing a lot with Canvas, which is kind of think of a web app in a smart display that you could use voice. And so we recently launched and that I wrote, I co-wrote a code lab that will walk you through that. So there's a lot of really cool things. So definitely check out our docs, check out our videos. We're always doing some fun stuff. And of course our code labs actually like learn because that's how I learn is by like walking through something. So yeah. And of course, follow me on Twitter, uh, chat that sweetie. That's usually what I'm on most things now, but yeah, I'm sure we'll, yeah, we'll add all that to the thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think that like also for folks who want to learn more about Google tools, I mean, just join a Google developers group, meet amazing people. And like years later, you get to do fun projects and see their amazing face and talk about Furbies together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think with that, it's just like, it blows my mind. It's how interconnected like the ecosystem is, people are, I mean, I know this sounds a bit generic, but like when you stop to think about it, it's very bonkers. Totally. Yeah. And that space is like, you know, people, or you know, somebody who knows that person, which is fantastic. David, who we both know, just someone reached out to me this morning going like, Hey, I was talking to David. And he said, X, Y, Z. And I was like, okay, because I know it's David. And he recommend like he gave my information, like I could trust that source because I know this person, which I think is really cool that you could have a lot of this mixing and men- like recommending to folks. And it's not like an exclusive club. Like if you are interested and you like technology and you like to talk to people, like Google Developer Group is a great place to form those relationships. Yeah. And I think that's just how like you learn about other dev tools as well. It was just being recommended by other folks building with it. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Developer advocate from Google, Antonio, head of AI. Thank you so much for joining us as co-host. Thank you. Welcome back. What a fun episode. It was three caballeros. It was fun. I really appreciate y'all staying on towards the end. And I think what I really took away from this is also just understanding that transitional piece as a dev, maybe even exploring to become a voice dev, the way you want to understand your user intent definitely left a huge impression on me. It was it was an awesome conversation. For those who want to build with other devs who want to build with me, feel free to join our developer group. We have about 300,000 developers. I'll link in the show notes how to join our dev community. Feel free to build with us. There's really fun demos that we like to build. And yeah, I think it's just a really great community if you want to learn how to build large-scale projects as well, beyond just startups. I typically enjoy building goofy apps, but there's a lot of other devs out there, especially for this community, on how to build on a large-scale level. I think it's going to be a great opportunity, so feel free to join us. And again, I so appreciate it. If you guys have not already, feel free to just share this episode with a friend. If you feel like, yo, this was super helpful. I want to recommend this to a friend. Give them a text, ping them it. It's going to be great. Thank you so much for joining. I will see you back. Yeah, next episode. Hit me up. Let me know. Take care.